You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Uh, actually, because my neighbors are tired of me singing sea shanties. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm C.L. Clark. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 46. Join in if you know the chorus. Well, welcome, listeners. We are so excited to have you join us this week. We have a very special guest uh, joining us on World Building for Masochists, C.L. Clark. Would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us about your work? Sure. Uh, I'm C.L. Clark. You guys can call me Sheree. I'm the author of the upcoming novel, The Unbroken, which is a military political fantasy in the vein of the Trader Baru Cormorant and a little bit less spacey, but similar to a memory called Empire. Um, and I also, I've written several short stories across a few different science fiction and fantasy venues like Podcastle, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and Uncanny. I'm also currently a co-editor at Podcastle, and this week we just won the British Fantasy Award for Best Audio! Yay! That was a pretty great way to start the week. Uh, my work usually has something to do with war, imperialism, and uh, enemies who like each other just a little too much, often to tragic consequences. So I apologize in advance. <laughs> and Sheree, I keep, I haven't gotten a chance to get a hold of The Unbroken yet, but I keep hearing amazing things about it, so I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Everyone I know who reads it is like, oh, you've got to read this. This is amazing. So it's pretty amazing. Oh, thank it's you. Pretty amazing. So thank you for adding to my TBR <laughs> already. <laughs> it's funny because I, I get to read so few things now, but as soon as uh, Britt was like, I have this who wants to blurb for it. I was like, um, hi, yes, please. <laughs> that was very heartening. One of the first one of the first people in the world who said, I want to read this. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Yay! So, uh, and my instincts were spot on. And because good, because it was very good. <laughs> and thus here we are. And what else have we got? going on before we dive into things i think this is the last week we'll pester our listeners about the hugo nominations <laughs> um if i've done the math correctly on when this comes out versus when those nominations close we're reminding you again or maybe this is the first episode you've ever listened to and you don't yet know that we are eligible for the best fan cast so if you are someone who has hugo nominating capabilities we would heartily enjoy your consideration <laughs> That was like the best like blurb we've ever done for that. Nice job, Cass. Yeah, six times the charm or something like that. <laughs> so we wanted to talk today with Sheree about all of the in-world text stuff that that happens in books, all that ephemera that like shows up um, in our novels. And I mean, it makes sense, right? Because we're writers. So we like writing stuff and reading stuff and word stuff. So I guess it makes sense that our books end up just like littered with writing and reading and reciting and singing and all kinds of ways of verbal expression. Are there any that pop out to you all as ones that you have read or encountered that you're like yes that comes to mind as something i just love i love how this author did that 
I mean, I, this is, this is, is silly a little bit, and maybe it doesn't even count, but like technically the Hobbit, you know, like as a, as a framing, like I am writing my story of what happened, which, you know, I think that's pretty cool. It's not quite the in-text text, but. Um, I do love a framing device. I love that. I think something that really hit me when I was younger, though, is um, the Lord of the Rings in general has so much like I got when I was like 13, I got the uh, like the big uh, omnibus and it had all of the songs like the full Tom Bombadil song, the full like ballads and and I got a soundtrack with Christopher Lee singing a lot of the songs. Um, it, It wasn't even the movie soundtrack, but an actual book soundtrack. And that just blew my mind. Is there anything Christopher Lee couldn't do? No. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> no. <laughs> there really wasn't. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, Tolkien is certainly one of the big ones in terms of, like, filling it with the meta text of, like, here's all these all these songs and poems and all that. The, the one that is probably the most influential for me has got to be Watership Down. With all the with all the El Herrera stories and the Black Rapid of Beanlay and the way like almost any other book, if there was a point where it's like, well, lots of bad things are happening, but let's just stop and tell a story. You'd be like, <laughs> no, that's not going to work. But but that book makes it work in, in, in so many good ways because he uses he uses those that mythology of their of their stories as a way to further build the things that they're doing. I am an absolute sucker for stories that have sort of texts that don't exist in our world, but could. So like the Invisible Library series by Genevieve Cogman, where a lot of the plot behind that is like retrieving texts that only exist in one version of reality. You know, Shakespeare's missing manuscript or something Geoffrey Chaucer never wrote or whatever, whatever, things like that. Um, or in Neil Gaiman's Sandman, there's that concept in his libraries, in Dreams Library, that these books that were thought of but never written exist in, in Dreams Library. And I love things like that. I just think that's a neat, it's often a fun Easter egg wink to people who know different types of literature. But I just also love the idea of like, oh, all these great ideas I had but never wrote down, they exist in some other reality. So it's okay. <laughs> there was, what was it? It was a graphic novel i i want to say it was j michael straczynski's midnight nation where at one point they end up in like in the library of the unfinished and it is filled with with things like you know the you know the the beatles 1972 album and uh, i was going to say isn't there a um a, a recent novel of, like where people's unfinished manuscripts are like they're in a an unknown library somewhere and someone has to manage them or keep them from coming alive or something. I know it's real, but I can't think of it right now. <laughs> Maybe liner notes or something. Um, you might be thinking of H.G. Perry's The... The un- the unlikely escape. There we go. Of, oh. Yes. <laughs> maybe maybe that's Rowan it. has got me. The unlikely escape of Uriah Heep. Uriah Heep. Where yeah, a bunch of like Charles Dickens characters are coming to life, and they have to yes. make that not happen. Maybe that's it. Maybe <laughs> and that's well, it. and they have like a special street that they all like pop yeah. out on. And that's where they live, and, and, and it's really delightful. There's like five um, Mister Darcys, and yes. And what I love about it is that if a it's, if a reader 
like gets into the book enough it's their imagined version so there's this like element of kind of meta text on it like none of the mr darcy's are the same because they're all how a reader imagined them to be so i love that about it it's like a literalization of the parasocial relationships we have with fictional characters i must be responsible for so many manifestations i know i apologize to whoever has to control those (laughs) because i was like reading as a creative act and i'm like or maybe like really creative <laughs> for how things worked. <laughs> I'm just imagining all these Colin Firths running around London. <laughs> you and lots of us, Marshall. You and lots of us. <laughs> I mean, I've got a gay Mr. Darcy somewhere, so it's great. It's fine. It's fine. One of the ones recently that I enjoyed, um, and it was a very small part, even though books and and kind of like reading was a was a big part of the novel was. Um, the Once and Future Witches by Alex Harrow, mm-hmm. because she puts like a little snippet of a spell or like a folk rhyme, kind of like this little like hedgewitch spells almost at the beginning of each chapter. And it's a tiny little thing, but it makes the world feel much richer and also kind of gives you hints into how this magic works mm-hmm. and how this this whole thing is going to function. So I like how these these little, I mean, I'm a sucker for a little you know, spell or rhyme anyway, but I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of written work can end up in our stories? I mean, it's not, obviously not just a particular, you know, ballads or myths or, you know, one category. Like what's what's a favorite that you have? Oh, I'm a sucker for work songs, big time. Um, <laughs> there's, I don't, I don't think the fool ever made it into the unbroken, but I have like a soldier marching song, but it's, it's like, it's like really morbid. <laughs> um, and um, I really like, like sea shanties, obviously my neighbors have a problem. My parents have a problem. <laughs> um, but so that's one of the things I really liked about um, the Assassin's Creed franchise, like starting with black flag, you could chase the sea shanties and make your crew sing the sea shanties um, and now there's Valhalla's got little Viking songs, but also you can have the characters tell stories. Um, and so I'll go on long boat rides just so I can listen to the not related, related stories in the game. That's pretty awesome. I love that. I too am a giant sucker for like work songs because like they reveal so much about a culture and about people and what's important to them and like what kind of work people even do. Mm-hmm. Like some friends and I got really into walking songs, yes. which um, are, if you're not familiar, um, it's a Scottish practice that when you full wool, which is like a step of making a woolen um, piece of fabric, you have to walk it, which basically means like working the fabric. And there are songs that go along with this. And we got really into singing these these songs, even though only one of us even speaks Scots Gaelic. So I had no idea what I was saying, but they're really fun songs because it's just, you know, you have one or two lines in each verse that change and everything else is the same. So they're really easy to learn. They're really repetitive. You like fall into them really easily. Um, similar to a lot of sea shanties that the way that those work is you have you know, repeated lines and then you know someone is who's leading it or people are jumping in with their own verses mm-hmm. um so i just i think they're so much fun because they reveal what kind of work people do they reveal how communities have come together around work mm-hmm. and work is so undervalued in in 
novels to begin with, I feel like. Like, just hands-dirty work. I love. And the other great thing is, is such a wonderful tool to show things about you know culture and mythology and history without it being this like now i'm going to just info dump all this stuff to Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. and you and you can also use it to just sort of hide your foreshadowing in fun little ways and like hide the ways that like your characters will later solve problems i i was so amused the other day i was watching catching up on this season of Nancy Drew, I don't, I doubt anybody else is watching Nancy Drew besides me. But in the first episode, they're like to like get rid of the ghost that's like has a death curse over all the characters. They realize that the secret is in a sea shanty, so they're like, okay, we got to go find a sea shanty. And I'm like, how did they guess the zeitgeist <laughs> so perfectly? Because because they filmed this a half a year ago or so, but yet they were like, oh. We need, we're going to throw some tea and in there, there's the, you know, there's the hidden truth about who the ghost really is when they find the sea shanty and they're able to then use that to then figure out how to get the ghost to calm down. (laughs) And that's, that can be a really fun tool to use as opposed to just like blatant exposition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love how in a lot of common songs, sea shanties and ballads and all kinds of songs there are little like snippets of real history that end up in there so you know when you can work that in I was there was a my husband and I have been into sea shanties for a long time because we're dorks um but there was one that we really like called um fire marengo which is because we used to live in a town called marengo so we just thought that it was cool but there's this line in there and we're trying to figure out like what is the song about and finally, we like went on this huge rabbit hole to figure out that the song was actually about like blockade running during um, like the pre-Civil War era and Civil War era mm-hmm. in the South. That and it was like these little snippets of details that they mentioned Mobile, mm-hmm. they mentioned um, like screwing the cotton down, which is this whole process of like packing a ship full of cotton. And it was really interesting because it was like these little like breadcrumbs that we finally figured out what the heck the song is mm-hmm. actually even about (laughs) i love i love it so much i mean i remember when i was a kid figuring out like ring around the rosy and um there's a in the influenza song like i opened up my window and influenza like all those jump roping children's songs that like explain how people took in different tragedies and sort of i wonder what the covid song will be (laughs) 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 oops (laughs) Maybe it'll be a TikTok dance. Maybe the COVID hanger on will be. <laughs> but it speaks to a thing we were talking about a few episodes ago, where like of the sort of things that nobody specifically writes down because everybody knows what that is. And then, but then they become part of like something like a song or something where you then have to like break down and do the work of finding what the heck that actually is because they don't bother to explain it in a song because why would you explain it in a song everybody everybody knows what the tonguing is and what it's <laughs> <done>. <laughs> we don't need to explain that but you know <laughs> people a few centuries from now surely won't misinterpret it in any way no 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 that can't possibly go awry I, I am always wondering what in like a century or two, if people are able to like look, if there's an archive of what people did on Twitter, they're just going to look at like gifts and be like, what, what was this? Why are people having whole conversations and just <laughs> moving pictures to each other? That <laughs> Not a single word. Context. <laughs> 
clearly have a context we don't understand. <laughs> like, over-interpret every little part of it the way that historians tend to do. Like, clearly the subtext of the scooting across the seafloor octopus image <laughs> with nope is a reference to the ocean pollution at the time. Like, no. 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 Oh, well. In the 21st century, they worshipped an octopus god. <laughs> <laughs> but Sometimes even that kind of... is just an octopus. <laughs> even that kind of text, like, I mean, I, I... I am working with, like, a different time frame, so nobody in The Unbroken is talking with emojis, but, <laughs> like, wow, it's just so amazing that we can talk with tiny tiny pictures and whole conversations not a single letter it's just well i guess i mean you know if we go all the way back to pictograms and stuff that's giant emojis okay never mind i take it back i take it all back <laughs> everything comes full circle yeah. eventually like well and like there was that episode of next generation where it's the species that talks entirely in metaphor and uh, so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so they have like whole conversations it's just here's a reference to this thing here's a reference to this thing here's a reference to this thing people are like that makes when the know, wall how fell. can a culture reach that point i'm like well i think we've kind of reached that point in a way that <laughs> we can in fact do that and that that shared context then becomes the only thing that we're using as communication i think and i think that can be interesting Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, and Shakespeare does that all the time of like, you know, there's tons of just like, here's a reference to a thing. Here's a reference to it. Like, I just gave a whole speech with 90 different pop culture references. Good luck. <laughs> and most of those, you know, now poor high school kids are like, what, a, what does this mean? Now we have to break down and understand. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes about coal carrying. I just, what? I... <laughs> But you're absolutely right. There's things like that that everyone at the time knew that have now evaporated. Um, and I think that sort of keys in on on some level to another difference that we've mentioned in a few different episodes about the stories and the things that get written down versus the ones that are only passed on through oral tradition mm -hmm. and how that transmission over time can affect your culture and how they perceive everything from their scriptures to their social dynamics to their songs and just how much time can pass between when something like enters cultural vernacular in whatever way it does whether it's a song or a story and the time that it actually gets written down just how many variations that you have like um like the child ballads that he went around in the 19th century collecting these songs and a lot of them like he'll write down notes that the person he got it from learned it from someone who learned it from someone that you can trace it back to at least the late 18th century. And it's probably older than that. And he'll have like six variations of the same song. And you can see how it's all the same, but also not quite. And you just start to wonder then there's an interplay between what the song is and it's like er format. And then like all the different spins people put on their own on it mm -hmm. and how the meaning of the song can change and how you can end up with these actually kind of subversive messages in these songs um, where, um, you know, you have like the old trope of, you know, it, should I marry the rich girl or the poor girl? And there's one song that plays with that and it adds a preface um where actually it's clear and the language is literally um how how should i like 
have three hearts as one and refers to themselves as three lovers. And it's really clear that someone like reworked this motif as they all loved each other and didn't want to pick. Like, it's not just the rich girl, poor girl thing. It was the like, Mm -hmm. this is not allowed in our society. And it's kind of interesting, like (laughs) how it plays the exact same like pattern all through the song, but you read it and you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. wait a minute. This is about something else. I would like to hear that. And of course they all die at the end because it's a balance. So <laughs> I would like to I would like I would like to see it. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I I will happily send it to you. That one's um Lord Thomas and Fair Ellender. Okay. Is the song. Okay. And it's also a good reminder of just how many love triangles could just be solved by just be like, wait, can't we just all three be together? <laughs> wouldn't that no, be easier no you have to cut off someone's head and then someone else has to get stabbed and then and then you, you pick neither anyway so yeah <laughs> this is how it works mm-hmm. it's a ballad must end in tragedy i think it's interesting too like to consider what's like what's the the highbrow versus like pop culture mm-hmm. of your world and how do you fold that into writing like is it are you including like the high high society art songs mm-hmm. or is it like the ballad that someone's singing you know on a street corner or whatever like what gets pulled in i get to cheat because i have characters in both high and low society and so i just have them both interacting with um with some sort of text whether it's a song or whatever like um my rich princess character She's a nerd, scholar type, and so she's always digging in books. And she's quoting a sort of like Machiavelli or 48 Rules of Power type book try, like that she's read and she's trying to take to heart. And, you know, she could have made better choices, but it's the text that she has, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but then uh, the soldier character, one of her little girlfriends... She's she remembers a really dirty poem, like fake poem that she wrote for her. And it's like scandalous, but it also um it also references sort of like the taboos that are in their little soldier society. So But there's also the element of how often is the you know, the high art, the, the great literature of one generation that that was just the good trash of three generations ago and that that survived long enough to become the exalted canon mm-hmm. when at the time people were like no this this is this is some trashy stuff but you know but now <laughs> it was your grandfather's trashy stuff so therefore it is literature now <laughs> once again my good friend bill shakespeare right into that mode straight into it cuz the theater was pop culture and it got printed as books and then sort of over time it acquired that weight yeah. of literature and i hate that it should be same with chaucer nonsense. like yeah it was yeah. dirty 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 little stories <laughs> and now we're studying them in our fancy college classes and or even like high school classes if you're yeah yeah boccaccio's decameron mostly about orgasms that's that's most of that book is about orgasms put in flowery metaphor and i think you can you can play with that expectation in your characters and use it to show what their expectations are what their cultural touchstones are 
are the body songs offensive to your higher status characters? Are they shocking? Have they never heard such language? Or do they delight in it? Do they have a little glee when they get to, to hear these types of things? And do your perhaps social climbing characters intentionally quote the very highbrow stuff in sort of a Polonius fashion mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. from Hamlet? Are they consciously trying to adopt this higher language and this elevated literature to make themselves seem of a different status? And like um, scrub out the other, other Yeah, references. like, oh no, I would never, I've never heard that song. Don't know what you're saying. <laughs> Even though my <laughs> never, toe is tapping ever, rhythmically. Never heard it. <laughs> yeah, like I think you can use that to show a lot of social dynamics and, and using the in-world literature and other texts to reflect that can be a lot of fun. I had fun doing that in From Unseen Fire when I've got a total side character purely put in for my own amusement. He's he's sort of an amalgamation of Catullus and Ovid and at a Saturnalian revel he tells a bunch of dirty jokes in poetic fashion but then later on sort of as the party mellows out he starts doing something a little more highbrow because everyone's mm-hmm. sort of sleepy and he's like oh I'll get into my lyrical stuff now. <laughs> sort of fun i don't know (laughs) i think too when you like kind of can break down the literature versus good trash barriers that there's a lot of good trash out there that you can play with and that in worlds can be a lot of fun to kind of chase down like i mean are there magazines are people reading magazines like do do magazine snippets have a role in your story you know Mm -hmm. can um, newspapers and other kind of like common, commonly printed, commonly available stuff, you know, trade cards and calling cards and all kinds of little bits that can have quotes and snippets and stuff kind of clinging to it mm-hmm. can be really fun, even if it's only a few lines. Mm-hmm. I've got broadsides, like, in theory, I guess some people out there are making them with actual words, but I have a particular person who is making like comic style. They're like n- not really comics, but in my head I'm pretending that they are comics, like political cartoons that they get posted around the city and stuff. It's very scandalous. Um gets people in trouble, but I just I think sometimes about like like Luther stamping the broadside on the side I'm like oh, why can't we do this in fantasy? Just skip polemics <laughs> all over and it's fine. Or not fine, actually, but that would be what was interesting. Yep. And it can, <laughs> that can speak to the political use of language. You know, are those things things that get furtively passed around between people? Or is it something you subscribe to that comes to your house, but maybe no one really knows? Or is it just nailed to every post you can find mm-hmm. in defiance of the authorities? And that tone can create some great tension. Yeah, I I think I managed to like work in in um, my Unravel Kingdom books. There's like pamphlets being printed that people are passing around. There are political cartoons. There's one where they're like depicting the main character who is a seamstress who sews like charms into clothing as like dipping her knitting needles in rat poison. And she's like, is this what they think I do? Like what? (laughs) No, this is wrong. One of the first big choices I made in the Meridane books was having it be a very print heavy kind of culture where there's just there's like tons of different big newspapers in the city and a bunch of small newspapers and then people just making weird pamphlets and like on every level of like 
just the sheer amount of ink and paper being used in the city on a daily basis was just absurd but that was like the direction i wanted to go and that there's you know there's the high literature novels but there's also like the trash like dime store I, I think I used the term penny hearts for like the cheap romance books that, that get <laughs> passed around. <laughs> I wanted the idea that, yeah, there's just, you know, there's good trash romance books that you just read because you need, you need your porn because why not? Yeah. Life's hard. I mean, I feel like <laughs> life's, <laughs> life's hard. hard. You need your porn. <laughs> and, and I feel like it's one of those things that in fantasy we're often up against the like oh but it has to be realistic with people not really realizing how realistic a heavy print culture actually Mm -hmm. is that there was so much printing and so much availability and so much literacy in many places throughout the world historically that it makes sense to have you know daily newspapers weekly news magazines monthly magazines cheap novels that are printed you know for cheap and you don't have them bound because it's you know your cheap trashy novel that you just enjoy and it's fun um that that stuff all like actually did exist that this isn't just something that marshall's making up because it would be fun to have print in his world like no <laughs> that's that's real like you, you would have had plenty of printers in a big city like you know london or paris or even boston you know historically mm-hmm. and then i love playing with the idea of what the power of the press can mean in 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 that in my world so that's yeah that's always a fun thing to play with i actually have a short story where um one of the rebels of that particular world it's a very it's a language heavy world where like um the the locals have a if they were born in a certain year they have a magic power where they can understand all languages especially because they've been conquered so much and so the languages have changed and so they're they're omnilingual, but um, one of them has this printing press where she's been sending out all these pamphlets, but she gets taken in. And so her little girlfriend is like, I'm done with this rebellion. No more. But eventually <laughs> uh, the the rebel girlfriend wanted her to use her magic skill to make basically a Rosetta Stone um in print so that they could teach everybody all of the languages especially like the home language but that was really and that was really exciting in world text to to make like like rebel texts and stuff i love that i love i think i made an allusion in one of my books to that they had gotten an anarchist with a printing press in his shed to print their pamphlets for them because i just wanted (laughs) to have that like logistical like okay but how did they do this (laughs) oh yeah there's that one guy That weirdo who just so happens to have one perfect. That's it. Right. Right. I, I created this whole little sort of sub thing about the, the culture of all the kids who actually deliver newspapers and there being this sort of like turf war between them. Like all all is a side of like, no, look, I can get my boys to deliver your paper, but if we're not selling enough of yours, it's not worth our trouble. So therefore, you like you either have to pay us ahead of time or we're gonna deliver for the other guys. Oh. <laughs> because it is distribution not struggles, just the man. printer, but distribution struggles. We we could probably derail on that topic. <laughs> we'll avoid derailing on that topic. Because one other little little thing I wanted to touch on was um kind of the the stuff everybody knows in your world often might be the stuff that you learn as kids 
and the place that like children's songs and and stories and nursery rhymes might have mm-hmm. in world building do you have an alphabet song Ooh, is that a thing is that's that... a good point like is that how you're how do they how do they learn literacy if literacy is something that the people in your world commonly engage with yeah how do they get there that's a good point because i i haven't thought about it in terms of like world building but it's always what i go to first when i start learning a language is okay well how do the kids learn the alphabet because i don't know it and obviously the songs are meant to be catchy enough to memorize so i mean here i am mid 30s and i still sing the (laughs) alphabet song to myself if i have to alphabetize something so (laughs) clearly it's like in there that's how you know it that's how yeah <laughs> because you knew the song i can't decouple it it's just there and it's the same thing as as you know the sort of the standard intro to reading texts the c spot run type stuff or the books that teach rhyming words and and that basic level of early education yeah where does it come from how formalized is it or is it sort of scattered and something that gets passed down within families as opposed to within a broader structure Mm-hmm. Right, because whether or not something is tied into an overarching like educational system right. makes a big difference in what and how you learn. Mm-hmm. One that always gets me too is when people will start comparing like the the childhood songs that they grew up with, or like what do you sing on your birthday with people from other countries, mm-hmm. and how they're like shockingly not the same. Obviously, but like it's always like this delightful surprise when you realize that like people who are not from America don't sing the happy birthday song like there's a different song that you sing in other places and it's kind of you know you can play with that too of like okay so what's what's normal and accepted like from childhood on in your world that's just like well no we don't do it like that which was such a shock to me because when i took spanish in high school and college like we were taught like like feliz cumpleaños a ti feliz cumpleaños a ti we'll probably get uh struck for for copyright violation for me doing that (laughs) Um, but in mexico they don't really sing that at all they sing a song that i've still i know the tune but i still haven't haven't memorized the words but like i know it when it's being sung but i haven't learned but it is but it is this completely different song that is the birthday song there in mexico (laughs) Mm -hmm. so what about um like sacred texts like religious texts. How do those work in your world? Well, <laughs> mundane stories evolve into sacred texts. I maybe cannot talk about that at length because it will Spoilers? be relevant for book two. But let's just say if somebody wanted to get rid of their religion they would also have to get rid of the texts which would mean they would be trying to get rid of all references and some kinds like the more mundane ones like oh say children's stories where they do take for granted certain happenings um those might have survived but more sacred more descriptive texts would have been wiped out. <laughs> I love that. That was the best teaser ever. And um, and it's so true because I feel like there are a lot of those um, like elements of um, like when you 
even in architecture, right? That there are places that have been remade over and over again that you, you dig into and realize like, oh, this was in fact at one point a building for this religion and then this religion took it over and then it became like, you know, a grocery store or whatever. Like it's it's kind of funny when you have to scrape away layers to get back to like where where do you find the little seeds? I'm really interested in what happens to religions when you cross that line from a sacred story to a sacred text. Mm. Cuz those are different mm. things. And and if you think about some religions have one, some religions have the other, some have elements of both. But like for the 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 ancient Greeks and Romans, there were no sacred texts really. There there wasn't one true version of the story of Zeus or Jupiter or what have you. But then as the, the monotheistic religions start to come in, that text becomes a lot more important. And you think about things like the Council of Nicaea deciding what books go in the Bible or not. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the sacred stories of an earlier culture are turning just into stories that aren't sacred anymore. And yet I think, I feel like most people in, in Western European tradition probably could tell you more about the Greek and Roman myths than about the books that got excised from the Bible. Mm-hmm just sort of mm -hmm. where where the different stories hung on and where they're privileged and, and the fights that you can have about canon when it comes to sacred texts. I mean, there's a whole thing in, in the medieval period about, is it the Atque controversy? It's about the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost in Christianity. And it's like, basically, is there a comma in that line or not? <laughs> when there oh my God, it was the first Oxford comma argument. <laughs> it's, sort of, it's like that. It's not exactly that, but it's yeah. very much like that. And, and where you think there's a break between the words changes utterly the meaning of the Trinity. And it's like, you only get that problem when you start writing down your scripture, right? So it's just, it's an interesting theological and sociological change that happens at that point. Well, and even the dividing line between like canon equals sacred and then everything else, like even at the time of the Council of Nicaea, if I'm remembering correctly, they were like, yeah, we're going to decide what's canon. But like other stuff is still okay too. You can still read it. It's good. You can even read some of this in church. We're <laughs> cool with it. There's some stuff that we're like, no, that's kooky. But no, there's plenty of good stuff. Just because it's not canon doesn't mean it's bad or it's not sacred in some way. And I think that it's interesting how we've actually gotten like more restrictive, I think, in our yeah. understanding. Over, over time, it became more. It became like, oh, no, no. This oh, thing. you read that story? Oh, heresy. Kind of on fire. <laughs> <laughs> or we just didn't even have have it anymore. Like you wonder how much of the stuff is just gone because well it wasn't capital C canon, so we stopped bothering with it eventually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love I so much love the idea of thinking about in your world building like was there the equivalent of the Council of Nicaea where people sat down and just like let's let's codify these little elements of our religion and and work it out and throw away the rest and like, this is so not a, th a thing that I worked out because, of course, I worked it out. But that, you know, does is not... Is there a spreadsheet? There's not a spreadsheet, but... <laughs> <laughs> no it, drinking this time. Is it just a sheet? It's just a sheet. <laughs> but the whole, like, it, within the history of Druth culture, when the Church of Druthal gets formed, it's them basically going, okay, we sort of... Our religions are this sort of mishmash of like everyone from every direction of us, and we kind of need to just make our own thing. So it is this, that them, this part of the history of a 
basically a council going through. It's like, what are the things that are our stories? How can we take these things that different people within our nation believe and sort of mush it together into one thing and make that, you know, so it's like, so let's take these, you know, these folk stories from this part of the world and change those people into saints. And now, like now those characters are saints and we'll take this and we'll, we'll take the monotheism from these people who sort of shoved it on us a while ago and we'll, we'll scrape away the serial numbers on the parts that are very specific to their culture that we don't really need. And so there was that whole process and there's no reason or way to put that into the book because nobody other than me and Cass want to read that. <laughs> I think you saw that on my face. I was like, I yes, really that's amazing. But it's there in the undercurrent. Like you, you can feel that in the books as an undercurrent, even without specifically being given that background information. That, that means it worked. <laughs> I think really that's my goal is like, I may not be able to include like, everybody's high school reading list in the books but if i can make sure you know that they had one and it kind of like percolating through in the things that people tend to like agree on or Mm -hmm. all understand or like i always find it's interesting that there are certain groups of people that you can make a sucks to your asmar piggy joke with and like they laugh (laughs) and then there are people it's like clearly you didn't have to read lord of the flies in high school because (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, lucky you. It's it's a trip. But yet, Cass and I, we laughed because clearly we <laughs> almost worth it for that one line alone. Because occasionally you just pull it out, and someone just obviously has some kind of horror flashback of reading that in high school, and then they laugh. Maybe that's a trauma response. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I is. I changed schools right before I was supposed to read it, and I like I checked it out from the library, never got to it, and then I was going to a different school. That was the end. No Lord so, of the oh, Flies darn. for me. Nice. Too bad. Nice. No Holden Caulfield either. I never. Had I escaped the... Caulfield too. It's that one. I did not escape. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before that trip down our memory lane, we were circling in on a good point, which is how much of this do you include within your story? How much of the the ur texts of your world make it into the actual pages of your book? How much is too much? Um, and I sort of, I can't use myself as a guide because I could think about like, okay, well, how often do I make references like this in real life? And I probably don't go a day of my life when I interact with other human beings without making some kind of Shakespeare reference. But I'm abnormal. <laughs> so I sort of have to tone that down sometimes in my characters and be like, oh, no, that's too much. I can't do that every other page. Yeah, but I was just thinking about that, too. Like, in my head, how often do I turn to someone and go, oh, did you read this or did you see this one or even better? Oh my God, did you see this thing on Twitter? Did you see this TikTok? Okay, let's go. <laughs> but like in the real world, I mean, you know, books do shape so much of our thinking. Like if we're trying to learn something, we're usually reading about it, or at least we were until like the last few years, you know, with YouTube and stuff, now we can watch it. But even even so, like philosophy and like the social sciences, if we're trying to study something, we're reading about it and then maybe discussing it um but you know we read our great fancy thinkers we use that to develop you know as sophocles did no he's a playwright i guess eh, as as plato said blah 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 blah. um you know so but yeah like just just that right there like in your world have you thought out like who the plato and aristotle 
are in your world and how that filters down over the centuries to, you know, where you are now. Do you, like, do you know who, like, like, who the Sophocles would be? Or to get, like, even more, like, like, who is the, who's the Euclid in your world? <laughs> like, who developed mathematics in your world? <laughs> like, that's a weird question. That almost no fantasy writer probably bother to think about because you it would never come up i love thinking about that sort of thing because mm -hmm. we tend when we're like we're building out like the histories of our worlds to like go more for like here's like here's the rulers and here's the battles and not like not like the people who made the art like we'll mm -hmm. have the art but not necessarily the culture behind mm -hmm. the creation of the art and i think that can be yeah. really fascinating I did talk about like because it's sort of relevant. There are people who like who help develop surgeries and who develop vaccines, uh, or at least the, the concept of vaccines. But not math. That's beyond my even my like. I just <laughs> <laughs> no. Somebody did. I think even a. <laughs> I think even the question of like how how much actual text ends up on the page in terms of like if you were quoting from your imagined world's um, creations is an interesting question too because I think there's even value in just throwing a title in here and there mm -hmm. that oh, yeah. having a title for the work has you know this richness to it that just saying she was reading a book no she was reading the latest bestseller by so and so she was you know tacking up a political cartoon she was tacking up one from this magazine has this certain richness to it but i think that even adding some text you know depending on what it is and what the context is can give you a sense of the aesthetics of the world yeah for sure um and i really you know like i like i like i mentioned once in future witches like it you read those little snippets and it gives you this sort of like folkloric hedge witch mm -hmm. you know common magic sort of feel to it that you it adds something to the writing even if it doesn't necessarily you know push the plot or or have like a a checklist kind of function it has an atmospheric function mm -hmm. so i really like how um songs and poems and things can have an atmospheric function mm -hmm. in in a text it's really great for picking up uh, the rhythm of a culture as well like the the sonic rhythm of speech and stuff and i was just thinking like i don't know how we spaced on it but like the prophecies like prophecies all the time um they're like the most prominent now that i think of it like in fantasy text texts is like the great hero prophecy and i remember thinking like when i was younger like well this one doesn't rhyme and this one does rhyme and so like what what seer was really focused on whether or not this prophecy was given in rhyming quatrains like what was going on or did someone take the oracle's raw material and then fashion polish it, and up polish it. so that everyone would remember it better you know like oh it's, she's raving but there's some good material in there i can work with that let's see or like is is this in translation because i feel like the meter's a little off i remember reading something in beta and i don't remember what this is from but they like had their prophecy and it was rhyme but it was supposed to be also in another language and then one of the characters goes that's how you know a real true prophecy if it rhymes in every language. <laughs> 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 it's like, 
that was some good lampshade hanging there. <laughs> I like <Yeah>. that. <laughs> but like I I remember when I reread the Belgarian, which rests so much on prophecy as being part of its plot point. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that annoyed me was the prophecy, like whenever they gave you snippets of it, it would be sort of like flowery Shakespeare-esque sort of language and then you'd have a character going oh it's so hard to understand it's so obscure and i'm like it's not it's not remotely obscure it's very plain what it says very clearly like i was like why isn't prophecy written like joyce oh no that's like you really gotta like do the work to be like what the fuck is he trying to tell me (laughs) stealing it stealing it please Please write prophecy <laughs> that reads like Joyce. I think that's the way it should go. And that your readers should, should just be like, if there's foreshadowing here, I'm not getting it. So I'll just have to keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a flex. That'd be a flex. <laughs> we were talking about how much of the actual text to include. And so when I was a younger writer... I my fan fiction RPG site of choice was Silk Lantern for the Wheel of Time series. And so there are some songs, very few. Um like there was this song for the Aeol and it was, you know, like the battle song and I was in a little like fight off. Uh, I can't remember what we called them, but it was a sort of writing battle between me and the other writer. And we would get, uh, we'd each make our post and have three rounds to do it. And we would get scored each time by the like outside readers. And I remember that my character was feeling really feisty and decided to sing this song. And I got points deducted from my little battle score because I included the whole song for full flavor. Yes, it was terrible. It was bad. I was so angry because clearly you needed all of it in the middle of your fight. Like, gas yourself up. Why don't you? And and so on reflection, I have decided that maybe just like a few lines is fine. But I think mostly it's about keeping the rhythm of the story because as cool as the song itself might be to you, it's one of those darlings. Like I would, as a reader, probably rather see it in the appendix. Like I'd I'd be really interested to have it. But at the moment I am waiting for character A to kick character B's ass and I want to get to that. And so the poem in the middle, like six, six, six triplets or whatever in the middle is just slowing me down. I want it but I don't want it here. You don't want that big chunk of italicized text that will make people just be like, oh, song and skip it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's, italics are like a dead giveaway, I feel like. I, I even asked a group of writer friends a while ago, like how, if you encounter italics in text, do you read it or not? And like the group was split 50-50. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll read it. Or like if I'm enjoying the reading, I'll read it. And people are like, no, I know I can skip that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if it's in like that indented yeah, yeah. lyrics form. You're like, song, skipping. <laughs> well, and I do love that we have the flexibility with the interwebs now that, you know, we can provide these darlings to readers if they 
would want them. You know, we have websites, we can have Patreon, we can do these kinds of things. Whereas before, like, we didn't always have that flexibility. Like, if you couldn't talk your publisher into giving you an appendix, you were mm-hmm. just going to have to put it in a drawer forever or have it in the middle of your fight scene <laughs> where everyone's just going to skip it anyway. And either way, it doesn't get read. Except for by the few diehards who just have to. Yes. Every word. I do. I, I, I am one of them. Like, I may hate it while I'm doing it if it's coming at a time when I don't want to read it, but I will read them because I'm afraid to miss something. Like, what if this song is the prophecy? Even if it's just a drinking song. <laughs> that would be the real flex of just embedding the spoilers of the whole plot <laughs> in the <Italian laughs> Oh man, that would be so good. <laughs> like, boom. If you had read the song, then you would know everything. But y- you didn't, did you? No, you didn't. So yeah, uh, unless it has a actual plot-related point, I prefer to acknowledge that like the text exists and it exists to the people in the room who are, you know, who are experiencing it. But you, the reader, you don't want that. You don't need that. You just need to know that, you know, either a song is being sung, wacky stuff is happening on the stage or what have you. And, <laughs> <laughs> and a little hand waving. And, and, and there probably are ways to work longer pieces in if you truly want to, but it's a time and a place kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. You know, mid-battle scene grinding to a halt, probably not a great time. You know, right before your romantic leads finally get together and your reader's like, not a good time to stop and recite an epic poem. Mm -hmm. But there are probably times like you have like a party scene going and you just kind of keep inserting like little bits of the song that's Mm -hmm, being mm -hmm. performed in the background or you have someone doing research and they're having a conversation and everyone's like, oh, well, this line from the poem is pretty fantastic. And oh, over here. And this one is too. I mean, you can kind of play with those sorts of things if there are, again, for reasons, whether they be plot specific, atmospheric or whatever, that you want to include those times and places. I was going to say, there's also the, my just general anxiety. Like if I'm going to be like, here's this great poem from this culture and I am not a great poet. So like, I'm not going <laughs> to be writing this great poem that, that, you know, really resonates with you know the whole culture. <laughs> so I'm not going to, I am certainly not going to put an actual poem there because like, it's going to be garbage. And then, then the whole, the whole house of cards collapse. <laughs> I do understand how that could be a problem. <laughs> oh so i was thinking about what my favorite some of my favorite ways to do this are and then i realized that one of my other favorite um just entire instances of this like the game of thrones tv show i it slipped my mind entirely but i have been in awe and used it modeled it in my in my my dreams i haven't achieved it but in my dreams just the in-text songs used to cue certain moments, like the different Ooh, yeah. I- iterations of the Reigns of Castamere used to f- to foreshadow just general awfulness. But the moment I was actually thinking of was in the last season, the um, when everybody's winding down post-battle in Winterhall or Winterfell or whatever. Uh, yeah, Winterfell. And everyone is, you know, they're they're pairing off or they're sitting at their table. And so the song, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the one that Lorena McKinnon, or not Lorena McKinnon, um, Florence and the Machine sings. And um, it's gorgeous. I don't know if she's the one singing it there, but whatever, not important. 
Um, it's gorgeous, and uh, it may or may not be thematically relevant, but it just sort of filters through, and you can see it's just filtering through the haze as everybody sort of calms down after and falls asleep or falls to bed, not asleep, whatever. Um, like, I like those scenes when everybody is downshifting from action to um, relaxation, usually tense in some way or another, like we are anticipating something, but it's the writers come down, I imagine, like we just had something high, high tension, but now we're going to put you into a different mode where these characters are reflecting. The song can sort of filter through like their emotions or like, I mean, it's a cheap trick, but whatever, that's what we're doing. That's what we're here for. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a good cheap trick. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you just, you, you get to slow down a little bit. And I think those slowdowns are important for the reader after moments of high impact, whether it's a battle or a big rowdy party with a lot of, I don't know, back and forth stuff, I think. Yeah. I actually always love the sorts of scene where after something huge happens and then it's like one person starts that slow song and everybody else sort of joined it. It's, it's the way to push my button perfectly every single time. <laughs> Especially if it's a sea shanty-esque sort of song. I actually did that in a play that I never did a full production of, but I did a stage reading of where I, it was a play that was set on a starship where everything went terribly wrong. Um, after, after like, they were like the only survivor of a battle, but they were like doomed in surviving. So they weren't going to survive much longer. And then when they reached that realization of like, Oh, there's nothing we can do. And then there's the, they start slowly singing the, like the Republic battle hymn of the, of the future culture that the starship that I had already set up in the beginning. So that's just the end of the play is them just singing together this, well, I guess we're going to die song. <laughs> I had a dark period. <laughs> Downer. I mean, but those songs always do get me like, like, you know, I get a little cheery. I'm like, yes, you guys sing in like community and go die together. Like they're just really good. Yeah. Like, I definitely like if you sing before you die, there's just like a level of emotional <laughs> investment <laughs> for me. That's just I'm here for that. <laughs> I will always love the scene in Casablanca where they're in the bar and the the Germans are singing some German song and and they <laughs> they all of the French people in the bar take over and start singing the Marseillaise and. And that's where that's how they shut down the bar. It was like this like act of like choral resistance in this moment, and that's when they get shut down. But it's lovely and brings a tear to my eye. Because to to loop back to our very title, the fact that everybody knows the chorus exactly is what binds them exactly. together. Exactly. Well, we are coming up on our actually I think we're past our hour at this point, and we want to definitely have time for our guest world building. So would you like to leave us with a piece of trivia for our world that we are building live here? Bits and pieces of it anyway. Yeah, so since we're talking about a bit of music, a bit of in-tech stuff, somewhere in this world, or maybe it's all the same society, I don't know, however, I'm not picky, The a person's social status is at least partially, but very heavily, 
defined by their um their ability to perform some sort of extemporaneous song like whether it's like they can be clever with it or their their voice is good like there is a there is a voice skill threshold i would not maybe be very high society person <laughs> but um like a poor kid without vocals would be lower on the list than someone who's rich and has vocals but like a poor kid with vocals could potentially climb more easily um so something like that i think that's my that's my contribution i love it i might have to steal that for we each have our own little like sections of our world and mine is an archipelago and i said from the very beginning that music was a huge part of their culture um so i've been folding little bits of that in as we go so i would have to steal like that for for my archipelago or one island of my archipelago that this is a major social function is like yeah. can you sing can you perform a song mm-hmm. can you freestyle the song too? <laughs> freestyle <laughs> rap battles as social currency <laughs> Love i've been doing some rap battles as social currency in assassin's creed valhalla and i think it's nice. It's a writer's game, man. Like they're like, <laughs> can you rhyme and do this meter? And I'm like, man, I got this. Boom, let's go. Well, this has been wonderful. I'm so glad that you were able to join us, and I can't wait to read the Unbroken when it comes out. Readers and <laughs> listeners, um, <laughs> listeners, please do pre-order now while you still can, and have an exciting gift waiting for future you. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. It was so much fun. Thanks for being here. This was great. Love talking about words. <laughs> That's why we're here. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on March 31st, and we'll be talking about time, how your cultures measure it, what it means to them, and how time even works in your world and your stories. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, Please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there are a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.